You're listening to The Influencer Podcast, episode number 11. In last week's episode, we learned how to fast track our influence with Sarah Boyd, founder of Simply Stylist. This week's episode, we explored the significance of micro-influencing with Pop Sugar's Kirby Johnson and the growing impact Facebook is having on our brands in 2017. Welcome to the Influencer Podcast. Each week, Julie Solomon, a marketing strategist and New York Times bestselling publicist, takes you behind the scenes with successful influencers, bloggers, and industry elites in conversation to share how they engage, persuade, and grow their unique influence. Her mission is to share exclusive insider tips, wisdom, and action-based tools to help you strengthen, monetize, and build your own industry-leading influence. Hi, influencers, and welcome to this week's episode. I am really eager to dive into this conversation as it is one that is going to cover a type of influencer that we have heard a lot about in previous episodes from several guests, and that is the micro-influencer. Today, we are speaking with Kirby Johnson. Kirby is incredibly unique with her approach to branding, social media, and influencer marketing as she comes from the perspective of a micro-influencer, which we are going to explore in detail with her today. Kirby is most recognized as the host and producer for Pop Sugar's Beauty Junkie and Pretty Unfiltered, two critically acclaimed franchise shows on the Pop Sugar Network. Kirby strives to teach her audience how to feel most beautiful by working on what's inside and by starting open, real conversations with her guests and her viewers. Kirby has been featured as an expert and personality on the Today Show and the Doctors and has spoken at national events like South by Southwest. She has collaborated with brands including Revlon, Benefit Cosmetics, and Ulta Beauty. Kirby, I thank you so much for being with this today, and I can't wait for our conversation as I know that it's truly one that so many micro-influencers listening are really going to be excited to hear, and I know that you have a ton of inside scoop and advice that you have to share, so welcome, and I can't wait to get this started. Thanks, Jules. I'm excited to be here. I am too, and before we kind (laughs) of dive in to all the good stuff that I know that you and I have just even talked about since we've known one another, I would love for you to kind of share with everyone how you even got to initially Pop Sugar and how that evolved, what that kind of looked like, and then how that kind of woven everything into you being this really unique micro-influencer. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So I'm from Texas. Um, I grew up in a suburb of Austin and I went to Texas Christian University for four years. Um, my degree is in advertising and public relations. It was under the journalism school, Bob Schieffer, um School of Journalism, which is a great journalism school in Texas. Um, and I knew I loved writing, um, but I thought maybe when I was growing up, I wanted to be a host or an actress. I was like, Oh, I want to be Julia Roberts. And then I wanted to be Oprah. And then when I got to college, I kind of, um, the Capricorn in me was like, okay, maybe I should think about, you know, following something that's a little bit more stable than, you know, being a host or an actress. So, um, that's why I focused on advertising and public relations because I really loved sharing the message, um, behind certain brands. And like, I really was interested in how people operated, like what made them click or what made them purchase and stuff like that. And I really felt like in the advertising space, there was a need for more, realism, I guess you could say. Like I just, I wanted brands to be more authentic and real with their consumers. And I wasn't seeing a lot of that. So, um, that kind of played into what I'm doing today, which is so weird, but 
Um, I moved from Texas to LA eight years ago this month, which is crazy. Um, and when I moved out here, I didn't have a job. Everyone always asks, and I'm sure you get this too. Like, did you have a job when you moved out to LA? And I'm like, nope, nobody does. You just know, I hope for the best. So I was, um, I was a spray tanner in Texas. I kind of like brought spray tanning to Fort Worth and everyone was like, Oh my God, what is this like revolutionary, like tanning experience? I'm like, they do it on dancing with the stars. So I started doing that when I moved out to LA and in between spray tanning, I was attending red carpets and, and interning and assisting for different, um, publicists. And, um, through that, I got a job at Rogers and Cowan, which is a pretty popular entertainment PR firm. So there I like, I was a receptionist. Basically I sorted everybody's mail, made sure they got all their packages for their clients. And then from there, I kind of got to people, you know, Britney Spears's publicist, um, the people that ran the Grammy awards. So I was working like these big name red carpets, but also on the side writing for my blog, which is Kirby goes to Hollywood. I still have it. I don't keep up with it as much, but I'm going to start dabbling back into that soon. Um, and kind of through that, I realized, you know, I love writing about beauty. I want to be on camera. That's why I moved out to LA to be a host. Um, and then pop sugar, posted on a site called media bistro. I don't think anybody gets on it anymore. I used to get on there all the time. That's like old school PR media job website. That's awesome. I know it's so crazy. So they had a job opening and it said, we are looking for an on-camera beauty expert. You must be a journalist. You must, you know, be an expert in this field. And at the time I was 23, 24. So I definitely wasn't an expert by any means, like some of these editors that had had these jobs for a while, but I was very passionate about beauty and I knew I wanted to be on camera. So um, I auditioned three times. I got flown up to headquarters in San Francisco. And I think at first they didn't know what to do with me. They're like, this curvy girl, she's kind of like different. You know, when Pop Sugar, when I started at Pop Sugar, we didn't even have you know, talent associated with different verticals. They were these avatars that, and I don't even think we had bylines at that point. I think maybe we had just gotten them. So it very much was not so much about promoting a specific person. So that was kind of interesting when I started because I'm like, well, I'm the talent here. Like I want to promote the heck out of me. And at the time, like Facebook video didn't exist. Like YouTube had like just like started to skyrocket. I remember like Michelle Fawn was the hottest thing because she was like the first one. Um, And I remember I was making video content for YouTube and for popsugar.com. It was not like Facebook was not a part of the equation, which is crazy. Cause that was like, that is our main priority now, Facebook video. So that's kind of how, um, I ended up here at pop sugar and I've, my role has expanded so much. I was hired as a host and producer, but I'm a writer. I write all my scripts. Um, I socialize all of my content. I'm always thinking about different concepts for pre-sale because brands come to pop sugar and they want to buy into my series. So I work a lot with the sales team. Um, and overall I think it's really given me the tools, uh, you know, to, you know, venture out one day on my own, but also I, I love being a part of this company. So, um, that's kind of like how I, I fit into pop sugar and I've been here for five years, five and a half now. So, uh, that's my story basically. <laughs> and I think it's so cool because it's kind of like you, you know, you cultivated a brand on this platform that already existed of pop sugar, but then from that, you know, not only cultivating kind of a brand for pop sugar and their audience, but really cultivating a brand for yourself. And you essentially became, you know, 
a brand and a micro influencer. And so I would love if you could share how, like kind of how, and more importantly, like when you started seeing that shift that you were this, you know, journalist, this host for pop sugar, you started to notice that brands were wanting to do these collaborations. And then you of course had, you know, the foresight and the, the knowledge and just kind of the, the novelty about yourself to be like, Oh, you know, there's, there's kind of a way that I can make this work on both sides here. I would love to like hear more about that too. Totally. So a lot of, I will be honest, like a lot of the, um, first deals that I got were because people were starting to see me in these branded deals with pop sugar. Um, and you know, we, like I, like you mentioned earlier, I was working with Ulta beauty. We still have a big deal with them last year. We were one of Revlon's top partners, um, benefit cosmetics. Like when my show first, so, okay. I have three shows. One is beauty junkie, beauty junkies, all tips, tricks, and tutorials. And when we started that show, they were kind of like, we're hoping that people meaning brands want to buy into this show. Um, and I was kind of like, okay, whatever. But we didn't realize how quickly that was going to take off and how, you know, how many brands wanted to be a part of the show last year, 70% of beauty junkie was sponsored by a brand, but it didn't deter our audience. Like it didn't, you know, affect view rates. It didn't make them, it didn't turn them off even with the brought to you by card, which is kind of a huge thing because we know that millennials hate when something is super branded. Now, like Gen Z is different, but millennials in, like in particular, they're like, oh, someone paid for this. Like they're just being paid to talk about this. I don't want to watch it. Um, so we were trying to figure out, you know, the workaround for that type of thing. But when it comes to me personally, I was just, you know, as an editor too, here at Pop Sugar, I'm, I'm not technically an editor. I'm a beauty reporter. So I report on trends, breaking news, exclusives and stuff like that. I was getting sent a ton of product that so many of the consumers that follow me were getting to see for the first time through my outlets, through my Instagram, through my Facebook, through my Twitter, just even through my writing on pop sugar. And so I was noticing that I was starting to build up this brand of like the girl that has it first type of thing. Um, and also the girl that will give you an honest review too. Now I'm never mean if something doesn't work for me, I explain why, but then also offer alternatives too. like, Hey, you know, like maybe this didn't work for me because I have oily skin. Just know that it could be great if you have dry skin. Um, but people really kind of leaned on me to be like their go-to girl. And then from there, they started messaging me on my social platform. So that to me was like, oh, I have high engagement. Like people are really commenting. They're actually liking my, you know, what I'm posting. Um, and they're curious enough to go ahead and message me too, to get more advice. So I think from there, that's kind of what the platform, I mean, pop sugar, I would give hundred percent kudos to, cause they really did help catapult me into this this role. Um, and it's a lot, you know, cause I don't, I, I have a YouTube channel, but I don't, it's not mine, you know, it's pop sugars. Um, and so it's a lot different from these influencers and YouTubers that you see online that have these like millions of subscribers. Cause those are just focused on one person. I'm a part of this brand. So, um, I didn't know how that was going to work either. I'm like, Oh, well people even care to follow me. Cause I'm like a part of this, you know, publishers, YouTube channel. But I've seen that people come back week after week to watch my series on this channel too. So um, I don't know if that was the best way of answering that question, but it was it was very much like just taking the opportunities and seizing them. Like once brands saw like, oh, I saw Kirby in this Revlon video like that was sponsored on Instagram for all of these people, I started getting reached out to a lot more separately by other brands being like, hey, we want to work with you. How can we do this? Now, some of the time... And, and, you know, 
some of the time they were beauty brands. Some of the time they were more lifestyle brands. The lifestyle brands were easier for me to work with outside of pop sugar because obviously like it's not a conflict of interest, but anything with beauty, I obviously have to go through pop sugar because I am like their main beauty person and we don't want to have any conflicts of interest there with other brands. So, um, it is kind of like a, a sticky territory, but nothing, there's been no drama yet. So <laughs> it's, it's going well. So essentially like the brands really just started seeing how organically and naturally your audience and and not just pop sugar's audience, but Kirby's audience were engaging with the content that you were creating. And then they just started reaching out to you on social media. Yeah. And you know, like there, I feel like a lot of the time when I talk to other micro influencers, that's kind of how it happened too. It was that they were organically raving about a certain product. And when the brand saw that they reach out directly to one, like, Oh, Hey, we should partner together. If you actually love this product. And I think that's like a big, a big, um, point that should be made. Like, I mean, I feel like every influencer says this, but I don't think that you should just take opportunities because they're giving you a lot of money, you know, like Mm -hmm. you should, you should be off authentically wanting to promote these brands. Like for me, I, even at pop sugar, you know, that there's different cases for sure. But if I'm not, you know, happy about a product or I'm like, this product actually broke me out. Like I will write the sales team and be like, I honestly can't be a part of this video. Cause I just can't promote it. And, um, and that's interesting to see how they go back to the brand to be like, Hey, you know, like actually Kirby won't be a part of this video. Like, do you want to move forward? Um, So I think it's really important to definitely focus on like things that you're actually passionate about, because if every other post on your Instagram is an ad, people are going to stop believing you, you know, like they, you want to be authentic in everything that you're promoting. So, um, for me, it's been always a good match when it's, I'm already promoting the product myself and the people reach out and like, let's work together in a bigger capacity. And so how important do you think that, like Kirby establishing her (laughs) brand on the social media platform and really trying to cultivate the audience and you being so genuine with your engagement, really building that community for yourself helped essentially not, you know, you acquire more, you know, brand relationships and collaborations with brands, but also like pop sugar kind of blowing up. I mean, it's because I think that on the outside looking in, someone may see you and be like, oh, well, she just gets this because of pop sugar or Mm -hmm. she gets that opportunity because she has pop sugar behind them. But what I really hear you telling me is kind it was kind of like, I mean, of course, pop sugar is this great platform and it may help you produce content, you know, um, just in a repurposed way because you're going to have editors and and lighting and and that kind of stuff that's helpful. But what I hear you saying that it was really you being super intentional about who you were, what you believed in and you cultivating that with your audience that attracted the brands. Totally. And it's, and I kind of say this a lot. So pop sugar wouldn't be surprised, but like my voice is not necessarily pop sugar's voice. I'm real girl talk. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna BS my way through a review. I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna just say things for the sake of saying them so that, you know, a brand will want to send me more product or anything like that. You know, like I I feel like you have to find your voice as a micro influencer and that's, what's going to separate you from every other influencer slash micro influencer out there. I mean, like how many blonde beauty chicks are there in the space? Like, you know, like for me, it's like the only, I feel like the only things that separate me are the fact that I'm like willing to literally get like naked in a video for body contouring to tell you whether or not you should do it. And that my name is Kirby, which is not a popular name. So it's like, you know what I mean? Like if I don't have my own voice, how am I supposed to separate myself from like the much larger, um, 
uh, influencers that have a bigger fan base. You know what I'm saying? Like, totally. I feel like, and I feel like you are, are the same way. Like you have a specific voice for your brand and, um, and pop sugar honestly has encourage that now. Like I feel like in the past two years, they've been like, be yourself. Like this is who people enjoy on. And, and I honestly take, took me just doing it and, and not being afraid of like people seeing my real personality on social media, um, for that, for pop sugar to kind of come around and be like, Oh, people are responding well to you on your Facebook and on your Instagram and on Twitter, like incorporate that into who you are on camera for us. And it, it will only be like a happier marriage that we already have. So, um, like even from that, even just from starting off on my social media and being a little bit more open, we've created a new series called Kirby tries. And it's basically me just like testing out all of the wacky and weird beauty products I get sent on a regular basis. So that's so fun. And it's what a unique way to like turn something into kind of like nothing in a way, you know, like that's unique and that's what makes you stand out. Like, I love that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like, I feel like you get it too, but you really do. I feel like everyone initially is just trying to like play the game at first. It's like, Oh, this is like pretty. I have to have this Instagram aesthetic. I have to like use like this certain filter and make my thing look, you know, you know what I mean? Like that's definitely a part of building a brand. But I also think sometimes consumers can see through that and they're like, no, I just want like the real girl who's posting about how she's bloated or like, but <laughs> you know, she's like obsessed with Cole Sprouse, even though he's like 24 years old or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, so I feel like being authentic is the best, the best route, no matter what. And you know, your audience so well, and that's what it's like. I really want to give you kudos for building what you built aside from, you know, it's like everyone's going to have like a niche or a platform that helps them build up. Some people have YouTube, some people have Instagram, you know, you had pop sugar, but really what you did with that is like amazing. And so I would just want to give you props for that because I'm sure you get props for it, but I just want to make sure that I'm doing it here because you deserve (laughs) that. Cause so much of this is just you being you and not shying away from that and really thinking of really fun, creative and unique ways to brand yourself. And I think that that, that is the most important, you know, one of the most important takeaways, because that's what you know, that your audience wants from you. Totally. And I think, you know, anybody that might be nervous about like calling themselves a brand, like even for me being like, Oh, my brand, my brand, like, I feel like it's so just like self-important, like, uh, why am I talking about my brand? But my mom is literally like momager 101. And she's always like, Kirby, this is your brand, you know, take it, take it by, you know, take charge of it. Don't let other people influence like who you are on social media uh, just because like, you're afraid that you're not going to be able to get, you know, something that somebody else already has. I don't know if that even made any sense, but like, totally, she's, she's very much like focus on you. Don't worry about everybody else and just be yourself. And I know that's such like a cheesy thing to say, be yourself. You're like, great. Thanks. Like Mr. Rogers, but, um, it really does help. And like, I'm not claiming to be the most, you know, influential, beauty person in the world by any means. And I think, but I think that, you know, having my background too has kind of separated me a little bit as well. Cause I'm like, not only just this person who loves beauty products, but like I have this journalism background and these relationships with these brands. I know how to curate a story. I know how to create an angle. I know how to like get buzz for certain things. Uh, that might not be seen as buzzy in the first place, um, which is why brands continue to keep working with me. So absolutely. Yeah. 
My friends, have you ever thought that you have done the hard part? You have started your business and you have taken that leap from belief into really stepping out and claiming a vision for yourself. But you know that if you want to make money doing what you love, you need other support. You need to grow. You need to scale. You need a marketing strategy. You need a lot of this stuff. Now, of course, I talk so much about these things, right? Like how to identify your target audience, where to find them, which marketing channels to focus on. So you're really making the most out of your budget. And of course, how to use things like data to set goals. But there's another great podcast that I love out there that also talks about this stuff. And it's called This is Small Business. This is Small Business, an original podcast from Amazon, answers so many of these kinds of questions. Whether you're dreaming of starting your business or you're looking to take a part-time side hustle full-time, or maybe you're a few years in and you're ready to scale. This is Small Business is going to give you the practical tips that you can start using today. And I know that if you love these topics on my podcast, you're going to love them on this one too. Make sure to follow This is Small Business on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you don't miss these fantastic episodes. And a big thanks to This is Small Business business for sponsoring the show. My friends, as creators, we work so hard creating our content. So we don't want to leave it up to things like an algorithm to determine how successful our online brands and businesses can be. And that is why I love Kajabi. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs like myself build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. And I know they can help you too. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, your passions, your experiences into enriching offers like online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, communities, personalized coaching, and so much more. What I love about Kajabi is that not only does it make it super easy to use, but they don't take a cut of your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. You don't need a huge audience to make a sustainable income online. I talk about that all the time here on the podcast. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures without having hundreds of thousands of followers, and you can too. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business. Go to kajabi.com slash influencer. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash influencer. Go to kajabi.com slash influencer and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. And I would love for you to tell us a little bit, because you brought it up a little bit earlier about millennials and Gen Z. If there Uh are people out there who may be like, okay, well, I'm a millennial, but like what kind of millennial am I? What's a Gen Z? Like, I would love for you to explain those two generations and, and how they differentiate in this world of influence. Okay, so um, Pop Sugar is very much millennial uh, influential, okay? So, like, all day, every day, all I'm thinking of, because I work at Pop Sugar full-time. I'm not sure if, like, everybody knows that, but I'm here full-time. I'm here five days a week. I'm actually in the green room at our studio right now. And um, when we're coming up with content, you know, I have certain deliverables I have to hit each week. So I have to appear in a certain amount of videos. I have to deliver a certain amount of videos. Um we're always catering to this millennial person. Um, obviously we're focused on women. Like we're the number one lifestyle publisher for women. Um, but we also, you know, want to cater to like the man who loves makeup as well. Um, cause we're very inclusive, but millennials, 
I'm an old millennial. I was born in 1986. I'm 30. So I like read an article the other day. I'm like, cool. Thanks for like, apparently if you're born between like 86 and 90, you're considered an old millennial. And everybody after that is considered like legit millennial, which I was like, wow, wow. Like I'm not legit as a millennial. This is crazy. I'm just Uh, old, (laughs) but we older millennials are a little bit more, um, we're harder to please. Like we are always like, okay, yeah, that's good. But what about this? We, we don't take everything at face value. Um, and then the younger millennials, they just want to feel like you understand them on like an inherent level. Like there's no BS. You aren't running or like giving them the runaround. Like a thing a millennial would hate if a brand got involved is like, if you start off a video, you don't disclose that it's an ad and all you're doing is using one brand's product for the entire video. Like they're going to catch on real quick. Like, Oh no, duh. This, this video was sponsored by so-and-so I'm out. Like the mm. fact that you pull a fast one on them, they're not going to like it. Like they're going to get kind of pissed off at you. Um, so like not only is it illegal to not disclose that you are being paid by a brand to do a video, but it's also going to turn off all of your uh, fans and subscribers because they don't want to get the runaround, especially if you are catering to millennials. Um, then there's Gen Z. Gen Z is considered post-millennial. Like that's like l- the literal like definition of it. Post-millennials, um, the homeland generation. Um, it's the demographic afterwards. And I'm trying to think, I can't remember when they were born. Hold on. I'm going to look it up real quick. Yeah. So they were born in the mid 1990s to the early 2000s, which like drives me bonkers. Cause I'm like, wow, people were born in like 1999 when I was in seventh grade. That's crazy. <laughs> me too. I know. I'm like, God, am I that old? Okay. I know. Wow. Cool. Um, but they are actually a little bit more, um, accepting of, of brands putting their influence in videos or brands, you know, sponsoring content. Um, as long as the content is good, like they're, they're like, okay, like I saw this brought to you by card. Perfect. I'm not going to turn off in like the first three seconds of this video. Um, I'm going to keep watching to see if the content's actually good, especially if like the title's really interesting or like the person in the video, they really like them. So they're just a little bit more accepting, which I found interesting because I, I thought it would be the other way around. I thought like the younger generation would be like, get me out of this ad corporate sales world. And the millennials would kind of be like, okay, well, you know, it's fine. Like, if they sponsored a video, I don't really care as long as the content's good, but it's the opposite. So why do you think that is like, what do you think that the Gen Z, they just, they kind of grew up around that more. So they're just more accepting of it. I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. Like they've just been so accustomed to like, I mean, think about it, Jules. Like when we grew up, I did not have, I mean, we both did not have Snapchat. We didn't have no. Facebook. Like I remember getting my Facebook email at college. In col- yes. In col- and I, it's like, Oh, we have the dot edu. We can yes. be on Facebook. Yes. And I thought it was like the best day of my life. I'm like, I finally can get on Facebook and you went and you friended everyone in your freshman class. And it was like a rite of passage. And then literally the next year they opened it up to the public. So any and everybody could get on there. And now I can't imagine Facebook with like, without having my mom on Facebook. Like I don't remember a time like that. Um, 
but they've been just so accustomed. Gen Z has to seeing ads everywhere. Um, and especially on Snapchat, especially on Instagram. And I don't think it phases them anymore. I think that they just consider it like part of the gig for some of their favorite people that they watch and learn from. And they're kind of just like, okay, like, and like, I mean, some of these kids, when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they're like, I want to be a YouTuber. And like, they are like, honestly, they're like, they want to know how to be a YouTuber, how to become lucrative, how to like build a business. And it incorporates these, you know, ad sales. So, I mean, it's kind of crazy, but I don't, I think that that is the reason why, because they've been so accustomed to it. I think for us, like the millennial generation, even though we are old millennials, we're kind of like, we just don't want like, you know, to be, we don't want someone pulling a fast one on us. And even if we see like brought to you by, I think sometimes there is a a negative connotation with brought to you by, because in the past, you know, branded entertainment was so poorly done. It was like just so cheesy over the top, like Vanna White, I'm holding up a product and this is why you should buy it type of thing. It wasn't as organic as they have made it now. Like so many publishers are doing branded content, right? Um, including pop sugar. Cause I'm a part of it. Like I'm obviously a little bit biased, but I know that when we get presented with a brand in presale, I'm like, can we easily integrate this product that we like into the video or is it going to be too much of a struggle? And I know there have been times where we've had to like say no to certain brands because it just wouldn't have worked out in an authentic organic matter. So it really is about authenticity for uh, millennials. And I think that that's just the one thing throughout ever since I've started this podcast, it has been consistently authenticity, authenticity and organic. I mean, those are the two words that we keep hearing. And I think that it's because that it's just the truth. And there is no secret. There is no like, you know, that's, it's just, you have to learn how to really like dive deep and peel back that onion and try to be as authentic as you possibly can on the platforms. Yep. I agree. And so I want to now dive into this whole thing of micro influencers. Um, (laughs) And I'm going to kind of share kind of what I know or my perspective quickly. And then I really want you to kind of give us like the goods, but you know, the way that I see it, um, you know, as a brand manager and as a blogger myself and, uh, you know, as of my background in PR is the micro influencer is they're kind, they're, they're on social media, but they're users that are unlike the typical celebrity or expert or like public figure. You know, they're, yep. they're going to be the individuals who really work or specialize in one particular vertical mm-hmm. and they may, you know, frequently share their social media content about what they're truly interested in authentically. Yep. Um, but unlike kind of the traditional influencers, what I see the difference in is that they, they, they have more of the modest number of followers and maybe there's an actual number range that you know that I don't, but it's mm-hmm. usually like typically in the thousands or 10,000s, but they boast that like hyper engaged audience. So I would love for you to share a little bit more on that and your perspective of how you view micro influencers and really who they are and how are they different than the influencer? Totally. So I only like heard the term micro influencer last year because somebody referred to me as one and I was kind of like, okay, wait, what? And the way they explained it is like you said, they have a very hyper engaged audience. Um, people are consistently commenting. Um, they're getting messages. Their, their content is being shared frequently. Um, it's not so much about likes. Um, and it's also not so much about the overall number of followers. So like I had heard that micro influencers range between 
I don't know, like 10,000 and 75,000. And that's like, I mean, to me, when I hear 75,000, I'm like, that's huge. Like that's a massive influencer. But, um, apparently those are still considered micro influencers. Um, but also, like you said, it is on a specific, um, a specific vertical, so to speak. So like for me, it's obviously beauty. Cause like, that's what I post the most about, um, makeup looks, products, hairstyles, stuff like that. Um, and micro influencers, uh, the reason I think you and I even started talking about this in the first place was because there was this thread on Facebook mm-hmm. that I can't remember. Did I start it? I don't remember. Yes. And this is, I wanted, this was actually one of the things I wanted to get into with you. Um, so I'm, I love that you just brought it up. So yeah, the whole reason why I initially like even, I mean, I, I had you on my list when I first started the podcast, you have, you have been on my long form list to reach uh-huh. out to about being a guest on this show, okay. but you had put a Facebook post up and because of the content that was happening and what we were talking about, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get her on. And yeah. you may remember what the initial conversation was, but what had kind of attracted me and really intrigued me was that in the comments and there was, um, a beauty YouTuber from the UK that just yeah. did a collaboration with Pixie. I'm losing her name. Caroline Hirons, I love her. I which she is amazing and I love her. But I remember her saying that in the UK, she was like, I'm a blogger, I'm not an influencer. I hate that word. Like, you know, basically she was, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but what what we were kind of like talking about was she was like, I can't stand that word, and I don't know why anyone would want to be referred to as an influencer. Just like it is totally not like on the spectrum in the UK with, with at least the bloggers there, like what they want to be identified with. And then you came back saying like, really, because at least over here, especially in LA, like everyone calls himself that. And then I love the conversation because I was like, okay, well, I just, I just started a podcast and I named it the influencer podcast. So we have to kind of dig into this and like figure out the different perspectives of, of what people kind of think is that. And so I would love for you to kind of like go ahead and weave that in and explain to the listeners today how that conversation kind of came about and your initial uh, post that you did and then how that relates to the micro-influencer too. Totally. So I think, I can't remember like specifically, I think I was kind of <laughs> maybe throwing shade at somebody who like had bought their followers because yes. like I was getting pitched this, this one brand was pitching me this influencer and, um, they kept on bringing up her name and I, w- and I know for a fact that this influencer had bought her following like myself and another, um, blogger, like figured it out one day. Cause we were just like, something doesn't add up. Like her captions are like so long. They're not that great on Instagram. Like her pictures aren't that great. Like why, why is she like generating all of the, and this is like maybe three years ago. Like why is she generating all of these followers? And she didn't have any engagement either. So we were just like, something's not right. And then when Instagram did the purge, she lost all of her followers. She went from like 36 K to like 3k. But then throughout the day, because she had sold different deals with different brands that same day, she was buying back all of her followers. And so from there, I kind of was just like, to me, I just like, it doesn't affect me, but I just thought it was kind of shady on her part because she's basically selling something to a brand that they're not going to get any return on their investment from. Like Mm -hmm. she's getting paid, but like they're not going to get the engagement or even the sales or clicks that they're anticipating because she has a fake following. 
And, um, so I think like I was kind of like being shady about it on my Facebook, like as one does from time to time, I'm not above being petty. Like I can be petty for sure. I know. And I love your Facebook by the way. And if no one's following you on Facebook, they need to start now because you just like spill the truth out. So I love that. Like, I just think everyone should just be real about it. So I said something to the effect of like, like, why don't brands really research their influencers before they start working with them? Like, I feel like sometimes brands are just so focused on seeing these huge numbers of followers that they're just like, great, sign her. She has like over 200,000 followers. But then when they get down to it, like, they're like, oh, wait, she doesn't have the engagement that we thought. And like engagement is king here. Like for us, like if engagement only helps everybody, like when you share a video, when you, when you comment on something, when you tag your friends, like that's what we look for at pop sugar. Like that's what we hope people do with our videos. So on Instagram for sure, like you know, you should be wanting the same thing for yourself as an influencer. But so I was kind of like spilling the tea on that, like brands, please do this because the brand that had reached out to me, I, I wrote them back and I was just like, I'm really close with this publicist. And I just said, Hey girl, I just want to get real with you. I, I won't, I can't support this because I know this influencer like has bought all of her following. And like, I just don't think that you guys are going to get the ROI that you think you're going to get. And she candidly was like, you're right. I'm finding this is becoming a struggle because everybody in the industry knows that this woman has bought all of her followers. So that led to this Facebook post. And then when Caroline said that Caroline is also very, very outspoken. She has an opinion about everything and that's why I love her. And so she was very much like, uh, do not call me an influencer. And she had told me this once in person too. Like, I hate that term. And I will say, I think in the industry influencer almost is a four letter word because there is this negative connotation. I'm actually writing something about this right now, but there is a negative connotation in, uh, associated with influencer because people just have this idea of like, these girls and guys that are just getting sent, you know, tons of money by brands to do stupid things and like act a fool on social media. And there's like not really many consequences to those, but like, those are obviously like the most notable cases of them. It's not free influencer. Yeah. And And that's, I've noticed that too, from just through doing this podcast. And I talked a lot about it in the first episode when I introduced it. But what I've also learned is that a lot of people correlate that the word or the term influence or influencer with manipulation instead of persuasion. And, you know, persuasion, I think it's a very kind of positive thing. And, you know, you want to persuade people to do good or to see something. And if you're using a product or a service to do that, that's great. But when people feel like they're being manipulated, that's just such a like, ooh, gross, negative connotation. And so when people, you know, if if they're inadvertently, subconsciously, when they hear the word influence or influencer and manipulations coming through, they're going to automatically be like, ooh, you know, but not really seeing that it can also be if you look at it, may, maybe like a form of persuasion, you know, it's not always a negative thing. And I love that you said that. Cause that's such a great point. And like, I agree with you. It kind of goes back to the millennial thing. It's like when people think a fast one's being pulled on them, they're not interested, you know? So like, that's, I totally agree. I think it is more like manipulation. That's what people associate influence with. But this is what I tell people. I'm like, you guys can crap all over you know, influencers or YouTubers or whatever, because you think like, oh, why are they getting all of this money, you know, to do this one thing with like minimal work. But like a lot of these YouTubers are editing and like producing all of their content themselves. They don't have a team working with them. Um, they're obviously able to cater to a crowd and develop a very, 
uh, aggressive audience. I was at DragCon a couple of weeks ago moderating a panel with like Patrick Starr and Manny MUA and Bretman Rock and Laura Lee. And like that was Beatlemania, in my opinion. Like I have never seen more like insane fans than like when I was in at an insane concert when I was 13. Like it was complete. <laughs> And I was like, wow, this is insane. For People are obsessed with Manny. Actually, yes. his agent, Dustin, was on the oh, podcast. Dustin. Yep. Love Dustin. Um, he was talking all about kind of the agency's perspective and influence. But he was saying that as well, that both of his clients, Patrick Starr and Manny MUA, it is pandemonium. People, I mean, it's insane. Yeah. And like, I mean, it was, I like had to cut the, um, the panel short with asking questions. Cause there were so many people there that just wanted to ask questions themselves. I was like, okay, we're cutting like this last half, just get everybody up here. And we had 45 minutes worth of questions. It was insane. But like these influencers, they're able, and, and obviously these, these are on like a more like macro scale, but like they are able to give the receipts. Basically they're like, Oh, you want to reach a demographic of women 18 to 24. Well, I reach like 90% of them on YouTube. And by the way, like here's my click through rate. I can guarantee you sales on this at least 50%. And for a brand, like that's invaluable. If they know that they're going to actually make money and get sales off of somebody, like why wouldn't you take that opportunity? So I never, I never like, for me, I'm inspired by these people. Like that's an amazing business, um, characteristic to have. But I do think sometimes influencer can have that connotation because of you know what you just said. They think it's more of just like a manipulation instead of an actual like persuasion or like just like the power of their influence, you know? Um, but yeah, so that was like kind of, what started this entire conversation. Cause like for us over here in LA, everyone's, you know, everyone calls themselves an influencer. Like no one's like, I mean, I think a lot of people are like, Oh, well I blog or I vlog to like, you know, um, differentiate between what platform they're on. But a lot of the time, like when I'm talking to their agents and managers for them to come on the show, um, they are like, Oh yeah, I have influencer. So-and-so she has this many followers. Here's her engagement rate. Like, would you want to have her on? Like, it's very much just a a normal business term in, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that it's, it's interesting too, to just to kind of see the differences, you know, of, of that in the different countries as well. And so I, lo- I actually loved it when Caroline said that, cause I was like, I have to like, know, like why, you know, cause I just, obviously I have a podcast with that name. I find it super, yes. <laughs> su- super like interesting. Um, I would love for you. So you, you've kind of told us like who the micro influencer is, and it's going to be yeah. anywhere from like 10,000 to 75,000 followers. They're going to have super, super high engagement numbers. I would say like what, like over 5%, 6%, 7%. Yeah, I would say like over 5% for sure. And it's just like, I I think, um, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I think now it's getting trickier because you can buy your engagement on Instagram now, which is like news to me. Cause I remember, I don't even know that that's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. We used to think like, oh, okay, well, we know someone bought their following because they have like these high numbers, but really, really low engagement on their pictures and videos. And then now there's not only like, buying your, your engagement as well, but you can right, also you can buy your likes and your comments and all of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So that's kind of a scary thing. Cause it's like, well then, you know, is everything fake? Like, no. And I love that you brought that up. Cause I do want to talk about it. But the one thing that I always try to drive home, and this is just kind of like me putting on my old, like PR brain, you know, my <laughs> PR hat, but you know, it's the return on investment is everything. 
Yep. So I think, you know, and you really just hit the nail on the head earlier too, when you were talking about that one, you know, influencer that you knew that had bought all these followers and it wasn't, nothing was equating to sales. And we all mm-hmm. have those stories, you know, especially if we're living in LA and we're in the industry, we all know those, you know, there's a good handful or more of those massive influencers that get, you know, huge, huge, huge brand deals. And we know for a fact that they bought their followers It never equates to sales. Their engagement rate is bare, you know, bare minimum. And I think that, you know, as frustrating as it has been for, you know, the brands, because as you said, they'll just look at a number and really what's frustrating too, because I even know, unfortunately, I know of some agencies and companies out there that pretty much for lack of a better, like, way of saying it, encourage people to buy their followers so they can then pitch them for brand deals. A hundred percent. And it's these agencies who are supposed to be very reputable and very high respected. And they get these girls and they're like, oh yeah, well, we can't work with you until you have a hundred thousand followers. So, you know, call us tomorrow when you have a hundred thousand followers. Exactly. And I'm like, what? Because, you know, in terms of the brand, like that's just, that's so not fair to the brand. They're wanting to create a story. They're wanting to build a relationship. They're putting a lot of dollars into the hands of these influencers. Uh And if they're just sitting here buying everything, I mean, it does nothing but completely devalue the entire industry. I totally agree. And that's the thing. I think this is also a good note though, for the micro influencers. Like, I feel like this is this new wave of people. And I mean, brands going, Oh wait, she might have a smaller following, but like her, her following is hyper engaged with her or him. Um, let's invest our money there. That way they get better use out of their budget. Like they're able to maybe reach a few more influencers than maybe just like putting all their eggs in one basket, but also being able to see actual, click through an actual sales because they are focusing on these smaller, um, smaller influencers. And I think like that might deter people from wanting to buy their followers in the future because like, oh, everybody has a seat at the table now. Like it's not this thing where we have to focus so much on, um, having these high numbers. We can focus more on like the quality over the quantity. Mm-hmm. So, and, um, cause you've heard it too. And I mean, this has never happened to me personally, but I've heard countless stories that, you know, people are saying to me, like, there is nothing more embarrassing than a brand giving you a crap ton of money mm-hmm. and you creating all of this content and you putting it out to your audience and they don't get a single sale. Yeah. And then it's- the brands talk. Yep. You know, I mean, there's nothing more embarrassing, more devaluing to your own brand. There's there's no faster way to like go bankrupt in your business <laughs> than to yep. not make a brand a, their return on their investment. A hundred percent. And I think sometimes that's why, um, like we see some of the bigger influencers getting all of the brand deals because a lot of them do have like the receipts to back it up. They're able to actually sell. like, I, I'll just use Ami song and Rebecca Minkoff, for example, like Ami will sell out any Rebecca Minkoff bag that she posts on her Instagram. Like it'll happen. And that's why Rebecca continues to work with Ami because there is this, you know, her fan base is very rabid. Like she is very, uh, meticulous with like who she works with. And like Rebecca, like she walked in the Rebecca Minkoff fashion show this year again, because Rebecca knows like, oh, okay, if Ami's going to like support this bag, then like, I'm definitely going to sell out of it. So I feel she's like been able to prove that, you yeah, know, over been... time from their relationship. Absolutely. And I feel like sometimes brands think 
oh, you know, well, we know for sure that she can do it. So that's why they, they maybe like continue to keep working with them, which like makes sense. Obviously they have a huge reach and a huge following and they can get those sales. But I feel like some people are like, well, why aren't they reaching out to different types of influencers or or other influencers. And it's because like brands talk, they know like, Oh, well, so-and-so worked with this person and they couldn't get one single sale after, you know, giving them all this money to do this. Um, the industry is a lot smaller than people believe. Um, and there a lot of people talk too. So it's like important to just make sure that you're not devaluing your own brand and making sure that you're able to provide that return on investment. Um, you know, while you can, because also I don't know how long this influencer, you know, bubble like might last. I'm always been thinking to myself, well, what will happen if like social media, I don't think this would happen, but you know, what would happen if social media, like the bubble bursts and it's like, all right, now what? I always ask this of the, the guests that come on my show. I'm like, what are you going to do? Like once YouTube, like, do you plan to, to not do YouTube ever again? Like, what's the deal? And they're just like, I'm just going to ride this wave. Keep, I mean, I'm not going to quit while it's hot. I'm like, that's smart. Do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what next? So I'm always kind of thinking about that too. I no, I don't think anybody has an answer. Like what will happen? Like when will the bubble burst? Because it just keeps growing. But mm-hmm. I do think about that all the time. Yeah. And I think that there's little bubbles within the big bubble that will burst or that have already bursted. And that's why, you know, when I have friends or colleagues or clients or students of mine that ask me about you know, well, why don't I just buy followers and buy my engagement because everybody else is doing it. And yeah. every single time that I come back to them, I always say the cream always rises to the, to the top. The proof is mm-hmm. always in the pudding. And eventually it's going to catch up with you because totally. at the end of the day, it's all about the numbers. And if the brands, when they set aside these marketing budgets and when they say, you know, well, we worked with Sally Smith last quarter and we paid her $10,000 and she didn't sell one single thing. I promise you, they are never going to work with you again. I don't care if you have bought 3 million followers and you have bought an engagement rate of over 20%. Yeah. They're not going to work with you. Yep. Exactly. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that within the larger bubble, these other little bubbles that are just an illusion and they're nothing yeah. <laughs> but just false, false, you know, false ideals are going to start popping. Um, yeah. And I would love to know from you also, what kind of benefits do you think that a micro influencer may have over a traditional influencer? And we kind of just talked about that, but do you think that it's just, it's being able to be more niche? And if so, can you, can you kind of dive into that a little bit? I think it's definitely being able to maybe retain your voice a little bit more. Um, I, sometimes with these, um, you know, larger influencers, they might have to agree to say a certain thing, a certain way on their Instagram or wherever, because the brand is so focused on getting the certain messaging across. And I think that maybe because I don't know, like the deals might not be as large per se, like you might have, And I'm not saying like as a micro influencer, you can't make tons of money. Like I think like you can make tons of money by having several different deals, but I think like the money that's offered to micro influencers is probably lower for sure than the bigger influencers. But what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, you're able to retain your voice, how you would naturally say something, how you would naturally uh, incorporate this into a photo or into a video instead of being pressured to align, you know, a certain way with the brand, because you're like, I'm not a brand ambassador. Like I'm not being paid gazillions of dollars to like use your products all year long. But I, you know, I like this product and I'm able to talk about it and talk about how to use it to my audience in an authentic way that they will understand. Um, 
and that they will end up going to purchase at the end of it. So I think like you get a little bit more wiggle room. You're not, you don't have to focus so much on being like this representation of the brand so much as, you know, these bigger influencers who are getting, you know, these larger deals, um, for sure. And I think also it's just like, you get the freedom to, you know, like you don't know what you're missing sometimes. So like if somebody comes to you and they're like, Hey, we want to offer you this for this, you can easily just be like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't need to worry about that. I, I really want to curate what I'm talking about, what I'm, uh, demonstrating on camera, what I'm taking photos of instead of being like, Oh yeah, I'll do that. It'll, it'll make me an easy buck too. Um, I think that the, the two main takeaways though, are like you get more freedom and you uh, are able to focus a little bit more on your own voice. I like that. I think that that's, that's a good takeaway. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit as well on insights and data. Something mm-hmm. that um, has been happening to me just on the brand management side with the clients that I work with is that a lot of brands are now asking for a screenshot of their insights or of yeah. some kind of data to show impressions, to show reach, to show engagement and that sort of thing. I was actually talking to another girlfriend of mine who's also a brand manager and telling her that th- that's what I'd been experiencing. And she told me, she was like, oh, I do not send that if they ask for that. She was like, I just think that that's too intrusive. Um, I think that it's too personal. I think that you know, if, if it's a brand and they want to work with my client, then what I supply to them should be enough. Um, I don't do that. And I was like, why, you know, I was like, why? And she was kind of explaining, you know, why she thought that that was, that was kind of crossing a a boundary because I hadn't looked at it that way. So I would love to know, have you seen anything like that? What do you think when it comes to sharing the data and the, and the insights that you have as a micro influencer and what do you really think you need to pull together to really help you, you know, if, if an influencer out there is listening today, what tips would you give them of, you know, these are the five things that you need to pull together to send to a brand to make sure that they have what they need to potentially hire you and to make you stick out among the saturation? So I, that's such an interesting question. I love it. Um, I am actually so curious too, like why she said that that was too intrusive. I feel like that's becoming a norm now because there has been, there's been so many instances where influencers are faking it and saying that they have a certain amount of page views or whatever, and then they're not delivering. So I feel like it's almost, it's almost bad on the brand or agency's part if they're not asking for those numbers ahead of time, because like that's their homework, you know? And like, this isn't the Nielsen ratings. Like the Nielsen ratings are the most outdated ratings of all time. Like you don't know whether somebody's actively watching a TV show because they want to, or because they just happen to leave on the TV after their favorite show, you know? So if you have the opportunity to show people like, here's my reach, here's my engagement, here's how many people between this demographic that I hit and you're putting your name in the pot for a potential huge brand spark sponsorship, I don't see why that would be invasive at all. I feel like if anything, it helps to like prove your point. Now I do know that it could be like brands could, you know, play you against another person and be like, well, this person has higher engagement, but they're asking for less money than you. Like would, but we really want to work with you. You know what I mean? Like I could see them using that to kind of like their advantage to right. try to like negotiation. So I totally understand that. Um, but at the same time, I just feel like I said this a little bit earlier, you know, the, the metrics and the analysis that you're able to give to these brands online digitally, it's, it's like incomparable to anything else that is out there right now. I feel like that's like literally showing you the digital receipts of like what you're capable of doing. Um, 
And then in terms of just, uh, what you should have, like, especially as a micro influencer, I have a press kit. So, um, anytime somebody wants to work with me, I just send it back to them. Um, I'm in the process of like hiring a manager, but like we, you know, I just want to make sure like people know, who I am. So you start off with like your bio and like what you're all about, like, you know, whether it's beauty and being frank about beauty or whether it's like really focusing on like holistic, you know, wellness trends, whatever it is. And then like also talk about like, um, what you have to offer. So like, you know, you have a Facebook of 20,000 engaged fans. Like when you do a Facebook live, you average this many views. Um, if you've done any type of deal where you've been, For instance, like, let's say you're not getting paid yet for brand deals on Instagram, but people are sending you product, um, and giving you like a code that you can give to your followers so they can buy things. Um, ask the brand to, you know, give you a percentage of like how many of, you know, how many people are going in and purchasing the product that you are promoting so that you have those statistics on file. So the next brand that comes over, you can say, yeah, I can guarantee that, you know, 50% of my following, like this was the last brand deal I had and 50% of my following bought it. That would be amazing rate. But like, um, just so you have those numbers to help back it up a little bit. Um, and like I said, like you don't have to be getting money for these deals yet, but like it could lead you to bigger paid brand deals if you do have these numbers. And, and usually the brands will be pretty open and be like, yeah, like you had this many sales within this period with this code, blah, blah, blah. So, um, I think that's really important. Um, and then like, I don't know, a part of my press kit is like what I can do for the brand. Like this is, you know, and a part of it is like what I've done here at pop sugar. Like I'm working a lot with the sales and marketing teams to work with these clients and like help to really engage the client, make them feel comfortable with the content we're making and like get them on our site. Cause sometimes it can be hard to be like, tell a brand, like, listen, I know that this is what you want to focus on, but like, nobody cares about that. This is what you should be focusing on. This is what's going to get us the most views. Um, so kind of like, you know, demonstrate within this, you know, press kit. Okay. This is what I can offer. I can consult on, you know, um, you know, how to get you the most views, curating angles for certain product launches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I guess like, I don't know. For me, it's, I, because I'm a host, I have a reel. So like I have a reel of all my highlights and not just like one reel. I have two, I have one that focuses on celebrity interviews where I got, get all the good sound bites and push those to the top. And then I have like a beauty branded reel. So people can see how many brands I've worked with, uh, in and outside of pop sugar. Um, and also include like metrics and analysis on those two. So, um, yeah, I guess I just don't want anybody to feel discouraged as a micro influencer. It can be hard. Like I talk to a lot of my girlfriends and we're just like, you know, a lot for my job, especially as, you know, wanting to be a, a television host, like having a large following is also things that people are looking at now, which is so crazy. It's like that didn't like Ryan Seacrest didn't need to have like a hundred thousand followers in order to get American Idol. He was just good for the job. So they hired him, you know? Right. And so it's like, Oh wait, she also has like 3000, you know, Facebook fans, like sign her up. Like, you know what I mean? So it's, it's all about, you know, just making sure that you stand out from the crowd, but it can be exhausting. And I think, you know, this too, cause, um, when you're focused so much on like trying to achieve something, it's like a second full-time job, you know, you're like, Oh, I don't have time to do this. Um, but I don't want anyone to feel discouraged. I think that there's definitely like room for everybody at the table, especially now with the rise of micro influencers, everyone can have a seat, um, and, and can bring their a game as well. You don't have to have like these millions of followers like you used to have to, and you know, the last two years. 
Yeah, I would agree on that too, because I think that in a lot of ways there's there's kind of like a double-edged sword with the idea of like the numbers don't lie, because on yeah. one end, as you were saying with the data and the insights, you know, I've never had an issue with sharing that information over because I feel like, you know, the numbers don't lie. If, if my client or my student has X amount of reach and X amount of impressions or, you know, even with my own brand, like if, if I've been able to equate X, Y, and Z for this brand, then my rate is, you know, the rate's the rate. Um, you know, you can't go lower than this. This is what you're, you should expect to receive. And this is how, you know, I'm going to be compensated for it. Um, but on the other hand, as you were saying with the following number, a lot of times brands are like, well, the numbers don't lie. And you used Ryan Seacrest as a perfect example that, you know, when it comes to, you know, hosting or or what have you, they're just going to see the number. And even my husband, who's an actor has said that, that he's literally had casting directors tell him, you know, there's two people that we're thinking, you know, one of them is a acting veteran. They've been in the industry for 25 years. They've starred in over 45 films. They've starred, you know, with over 15 Academy Award winning actors, but they don't have a large social media following. Whereas this guy has done, you know, um, a, a guest bit on a CW show three years ago, but has a million followers. We're going to uh, go with that guy. Yeah. You know, because, and then in their heads, they're thinking, cause the numbers don't lie. So yeah, it's exactly. kind of like, it's this double-edged sword of like, yeah, you know, numbers don't lie if they're real. <laughs> you know? But also content is key. I feel like sometimes like we forget, like sometimes we don't have to jump on like every viral trend. Sometimes like we don't have to just, you know, bring people in because they have millions of followers. Like one thing with pretty unfiltered, when we first started the show, it was supposed to be mostly like a YouTube centric show. So we would bring in a lot of uh, YouTube talent and I know most of them, they're my friends. So obviously it was fine. And like, we had a good time, but I was finding that like, I wasn't getting like really meaty, juicy, detailed stories because a lot of times they save those stories for their own channels. And a lot of times, um, it was almost just like we were trying to fit them in for the sake of fitting them in. Like, Oh, okay, well we have this person, they have a large following, let's bring them on. And, and the show pretty unfiltered is supposed to be a little bit more meaty. We're supposed to be getting to, we're supposed to be like getting very real and quote unquote unfiltered. So, um, I was kind of struggling with that. And we found that, you know, the, the story drives the success of the show, like Hunter McGrady, she came on, she is the curviest sports illustrated model ever. Um, and she's 23 years old and like, she was relatively unknown when we had her on, but she blew up because of her story, how she's this beautiful plus size model. She was, you know, sent home, um, at 16 for being too heavy at a size four. Um, and now she's like gracing the covers of sports illustrated. And she's like basically turning her modeling career into like this full time massive job. So, and her, her video is, Uh, performed really well on both YouTube and Facebook. Like on Facebook, I think it has over like 10 million views now, which is like huge for Facebook numbers. So like, um, for us, what we learned just from that specific instance is like the story really does drive the show. Like we shouldn't be focused so much on like, it's like to your point, like why, why just, you know, hire this guy that maybe had like a random, you know, guest role on the CW show because he has a million followers when you could have this veteran who has put his like heart and soul into acting very clearly. He's, he had like his currency is all of the films that he's accumulated over the years, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and why should the focus be like his social following? Like, don't you want to, for me, I want to find the talent that's like under the radar so that 
I can be the first person to interview them. And then a few years, then when they blow up, it's like, oh, we have this archive footage of us when we first interviewed them. Like that will make great content as well. So absolutely. um, And I think the same can be said about the bloggers and influencers out there that it's like, you know, there's nothing wrong with being the person that's discovered. Exactly. Exactly. And I remember like, you know, Candy Johnson is one of my friends and she's so sweet. And we always joke obsessed with her. <laughs> she's she, great. like, I remember 2011, like mm-hmm. before YouTube was YouTube. Yeah. She was yep. on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. She was, the, she was the very first, um, YouTuber that I ever interviewed at the company. And we like, I was kind of nervous. I don't know why, but I was nervous to interview her and she couldn't have been sweeter. And when I see her to this day, she's like Kirby Johnson. And one of the things that really struck strikes me about her is she's just like, she doesn't like, you know, she's not drinking the Kool-Aid. Like she, she has seen like some of the stuff that goes on with certain influencers and YouTubers. And she's just like, I'm not about that life. Like I am real. I am here. Like I'm not like, she was joking. Like she's like one of the only YouTubers that smiles in photos now because like everybody's so focused on being like so sultry and serious. And she's like, I mean, I smile in all my photos. Like I just can't help it. Um, but yeah, that's like a different tangent that I just went off on. But I, I do think like, it's, it's so much more about like just creating good content that makes people feel good. It's not so much about like, you know, fitting into, um, a a puzzle of like how many followers can I get and how many followers can help me get these jobs, you know? Absolutely. And with that said, I want to talk a little bit about verticals because I know that we mentioned it before. Um, and for those listening who may not know what we mean when we say vertical, that's basically your, your angle or your theme or whatever your, you know, your, your main, um, topic is, um, as, as an influencer. So fashion, beauty, motherhood, food, lifestyle, health, wellness, those can all be different verticals. Um, so obviously, you know, there are individuals who work or specialize in particular verticals. Um, for example, you know, we've talked about your vertical of beauty and, and throughout that you use, you use the, the beauty vertical to, uh, educate, you use it to, you know, provide entertainment, to buy, to provide humor. Um, my vertical a lot of times is education and, and inspiration and, the, and those sort of things. Do you think that it's important, and this may even kind of be a trend that's more coming, for influencers to focus in on a specific vertical? Um, If so, yes or no. Um, Do you think that it's important for micro-influencers, influencers to really start making an intentional effort to kind of focus down in order to shine above the rest and above the saturation? A hundred percent. I feel like when I think of an influencer, I always think of that person and associate them with a specific vertical. So like my friend Jenny from, uh, Margo and me, she is fashion. She will always be fashion. She might dabble in fitness a little from time to time. She might do some beauty stuff from time to time, but like that girl started off in fashion. And I, I know a little bit more about her because when I was working at Rogers and Cowan, she was at a company called film fashion, which was a fashion PR firm. Um, and we both kind of were like dreaming of this day where we would like have our own thing going for us. And we weren't like these minions working at these companies. Um, so it's kind of like funny how it's all transpired, but like Jenny is definitely fashion. I'm beauty. And I, this is what I tell people. Like I get so many um, emails about my job and how cool it is. And like what, you know, they want to get advice. And what I always say is like, 
my biggest inspiration in my life, like outside of my parents are, uh, is Oprah. And everyone laughs when I say that, but I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to be the next Oprah. Like you watch. And I'm very like, you know, headstrong about that, which some people are like, you might be insane, but whatever. Um, but Oprah, when she started off, like she was working local, at a local television station. And she focused on one thing and that was broadcast journalism. She might've had big dreams at the time to like have her own magazine, have her own TV show. But at the time she was focused on being the best at being a broadcast journalist. And I, and kind of the same thing with Heidi Klum. Like she started off as a supermodel and she really worked that. And then she's now, you know, a great executive producer, you know, she's hosted, um, you know, so many shows. So it's like all those things came to people life after they'd worked on their craft specifically for so long. And I think that's kind of how you have to think about it as an influencer and a micro influencer, like focus on one thing that you're really passionate about and really good at, and then you can expand. So that's like kind of where I'm at right now. Like I've been focused on beauty for so long for probably like the past eight to nine years of my life, um, in my career. Um, obviously like being a host is part of that, but like at some point I'm going to want to not only like focus on my beauty stuff here at pop sugar, but I want to venture out and be able to like, you know, option out a TV script or like sell a show to a network or host a television show that's centered more around like a game show or entertainment. And those things I think will all come in time, like as I work at them, but I wouldn't be where I am right now if I didn't hone in on my, my, uh, specific vertical, which is beauty. So like the best advice I can offer you is like, don't feel overwhelmed when you have so many things you want to do. I know so many of of you out there listening are hungry and you want to uh, feel like you're making a mark in the world and you want to feel like you're actually doing good and, and, you know, influencing people in a positive way. Um, and I remember thinking like when I first moved out here, how am I going to do everything that I want to do? Like when I want to do it. And like, I, I'm a Christian and, um, I'm very spiritual and like God kind of just showed me his timing and being like, yo, like just focus on one thing. It'll lead you to the next. I'm never going to like lead you astray, just like focus and you'll be fine. And so, um, you know, that that's basically the only advice that I would offer, you know, don't worry about anything else. Just focus on your one passion. I should say, um, because when you're passionate about what you're doing, like it never feels like work and then more will come to you because people will see how much you're enjoying it. I I agree 200%. And I think that really focusing in also allows you to be able to a figure out who it is that you're talking to, who your audience is, and B, then you're able to figure out how you can serve them the best. Because I always say that if you're talking to everybody, you're talking to nobody. And if you're trying to do everything, then you can't do anything. Julie, that's like the number one thing at pop sugar too. Like I've learned so much from being at a publisher and I, I feel very grateful that I'm here, but when we focus our videos and ID a specific type of person, those videos always do well because people feel like, Oh, they're talking to me. Um, you know, it's not this like blanket of everybody can do anything they want when, when, you know, we, we cater to women that have natural hair, African-American women who are growing out their natural hair and not wearing weaves. Like those videos always do really well because they're like, wow, this content's actually speaking to me. Um, they get it. Um, or it's like, you know, girls that have acne, it's like, okay, do you have acne? Here are five things that you need to talk about. Like when you really get niche with what you're, who you're targeting and, and who you're talking to. you know, you shouldn't always be focusing on like generating like views and getting content, but it really does help because it feels more personal. And that, and that kind of just circles all the way back to the authentic and um, organic conversation we have at the beginning of this uh, podcast. So 
Absolutely. And before we pop off, I do want to dive into Facebook a little bit because I know that, as we mentioned, you have a super strong and engaged following there. And I want to really talk about Facebook because I feel like Facebook, for whatever reason, and I think that we're turning the tide here, but in the past, it's been so Instagram heavy. I mean, now obviously Facebook owns Instagram, but I feel like Facebook kind of got the backseat for a long time when it came to influencers and really like solidifying that platform, even Mm -hmm. though that's I think by far a much larger platform in terms of sell through, but I would love for you to kind of walk us through and talk about Facebook a little bit. Um, what you have seen in terms of your growth with Facebook, um, Facebook digital, the videos and the content that can be, that can be created there as well as Facebook from a branded sponsorship perspective and what that looks like, you know, our brands wanting to really dive into Facebook, um, and what kind of your experience with that? So, and when it comes to video, like brands really want to be a part of Facebook video, whether that's cre- creating video on demand VOD, or they want to do Facebook live. I get pitched all the time by brands being like, we have so-and-so available on behalf of this brand. If you want to do like a Facebook live, or you want to like shoot a video, um, And I just, I feel like, you know, YouTube, this is how I describe it to people. YouTube is actually pretty niche. Like if you go to a YouTuber's channel and they have like over 2 million subscribers, those people know who that person is because they're diehard fans of that person. But like, you don't have a large majority of the world like going onto YouTube specifically looking for that person. A lot of times they're going on Google and looking up like, you know, how do I properly fill in my eyebrows or whatever? And like, maybe the video will pop up there or they can go to YouTube and look it up and that's how they'll find people. But then when you go to Facebook, the reach is just so much larger because you're able to, uh, be filtered into the feed of people that might not follow you already. Um, And so like, especially like brands really want to work with publishers because they, you know, we have this like built in audience of different, you know, these large platforms with this built in audience that they obviously want to be a part of. And for me, like, I love Facebook video. It's where I, I, I feel like I'm most engaged on Facebook. Um, my fan page or my public page, my boyfriend actually like made me get one when we first started dating. Cause he um, runs social media over at Fox sports. And I was like, I am not Juliana Rancic. I do not need a public Facebook page. That's so, so self-indulgent. He's like, trust me, just do it. And I'm so glad I did because it's really helped me to connect with um, people that watch the videos and like follow my content. Normally they ask me questions. They help me generate new ideas for posts and videos. Um, and I feel like if you are not focused on Facebook right now, like you're really missing out on a big opportunity to not only like reach a larger fan base, but to generate more money. Um, YouTube is great. Obviously, like I feel like they will always be, YouTube will always be a staple, but especially for publishers right now, like that's like, that's my number one priority. And we optimize all of our videos for every platform. So like a video that you see on Facebook will look definitely different than the way it looks on YouTube and on Instagram, you know? Um, and just to, you know, I know Facebook owns Instagram, but like Instagram is not inherently shoppable. Like that's the thing that sucks about Instagram. So like it's, it's, it was meant to just be a platform of beautiful photos that you could share your life with the world. It wasn't meant to be like a shopping platform. And I'm really curious when Facebook will, will actually turn Instagram into a easier way to shop because there's just so many times where you can say like, 
link in bio or, you know, whatever to like get the, get the link to the purse or get the link to the lipstick. But it's like, when are we going to be able to like access links within the caption of Instagram or like be able to just to tap on the photo and be able to go directly to the page to buy? Um, I know like pop sugar, not like to plug them too much here, but they have, um, something called emoji code. So you can post that on your Instagram or your Snapchat. And if you have the app, it'll automatically bring up the link to like purchase the product, but it's still not inherently shoppable. Instagram is not, but with Facebook, like you can post links to whatever you want to sell or whatever you're trying to, you know, push and people can instantly click on it and be able to access it a lot easier than they would on Instagram. So like, for me, I am Facebook through and through. I love Facebook. I feel like it's just a way easier to engage with fans. And I remember like several years ago, Facebook, like nobody cared because, you know, especially with celebrities, I feel like Twitter, you could easily just talk to a celebrity and they might talk to you back. Or like you might be able to get an inside look at what a celebrity was doing on their Instagram. Um, but Facebook, it was just kind of like, I don't know, they would just repurpose and regurgitate like promotional content onto their pages. Like I remember like Jennifer Lawrence would be like, go check out the hunger games in theaters this November. (laughs) And you're like, that's not personal at all. And now Jennifer Lawrence is being like, when she chopped off all her hair, she's like, listen, I chopped off all my hair. And like when all those, um, when her new, uh, photos got leaked or whatever stolen, she went to Facebook and wrote a letter to her fans to be like, yo, listen, this is what happened in her, you know, wonderful Jennifer Lawrence way. Um, and it helped develop a deeper connection with her fans. So it's no longer just this like place to pump out PR content. It's now actually a way to engage with people that care about you. So Facebook's my number one. I will always like, I'm like, this bubble is not going to burst. Facebook owns everything at this point. I feel like they're going to own the world. I just don't see it going anywhere. I think it's just going to like, they're even looking, I'm so passionate about it. Can you tell? Cause I'm talking so fast, but I like love it. they are even, um, they want more long form content. Like I think at some point, maybe even this year, they're going to try to take on the Netflixes and the Hulus of the world. So yep. Facebook, very important. I would definitely make that a priority if you're not for sure. I agree. 200%. Okay. So before we wrap this up, I want to ask you a question that I ask every guest that comes on at the very end. Um, and that is what does influence mean to you? Okay. Influence means to me positively affecting somebody else's life. So I know sometimes, especially growing up, being influenced by someone can be negative, but especially in this business platform, I feel like influence is a way for people to connect. Um, and then, uh, obviously like, a it's a business, uh, platform. So if you are influencing somebody in a positive way, hopefully you're making their life better. Maybe that, you know, incur, if you influence them to buy this one, face mask and it ended up, you know, helping to clear up their face or help settle their rosacea or whatever it is. I feel like that's a positive impact on their life. So for me, influence is not a four letter word. It's very positive. Um, it just depends on how, uh, on how you work with it, in my opinion. Awesome. Okay. Well, Kirby, where can everybody find you and all of your amazing different avenues of work Ah. online? (laughs) Okay, guys. So um, on Facebook, I'm Kirby Johnson TV. 
Um, Instagram and Twitter, I'm Kirby Johnson. I really love to live tweet The Bachelorette. So if you guys like that type of thing, go follow me on Twitter. Um, and then on Snapchat, I'm not very active on Snapchat, to be honest, because Instagram stories has kind of like taken over my life. So, um, But I am on Snapchat at Kirby.Johnson. And then if you want to watch any video content, um, I post it on my Facebook page a lot. But you need to, need to follow Pop Sugar Beauty on Facebook and on Twitter. And then Pop Sugar Girls Guide is where all of my videos live on YouTube. So go subscribe to Pop Sugar Girls Guide. We have a bunch of very fun shows, whether it's like healthy eating, fitness, and then me trying out crazy beauty trends all the time. So it's a good channel. Go check it out. (laughs) I love that. Well, if you are listening today and want to dive deeper into this conversation, I would love for you to check out the show notes of this episode where I lay out some of the most important takeaways that Kirby drove home for us today. You can find those show notes at www.theinfluencerpodcast.com. And Kirby, thank you again. You really hit home so many amazing points today and really shared so much. So I so appreciate you taking the time to come on today and, and share what you know. Jules, thank you so much. I adore you. Thanks for having me on. Are you ready to create your own industry-leading influence? For show notes, downloads, and action-based tips, head to www.theinfluencerpodcast.com where you can find out more about this week's episode, guest, and our host, Julie Solomon. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please take a minute to go to iTunes and leave a review so we can help other influencers like yourself build their own successful business.